0: Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom.
1: I'm Charlotte Bond.
0: And I'm Megan Lee. And today we're really lucky to be joined by Paige L. Christie, who is the author of Dragonweather and its recently released sequel, Wingwind. So hi, Paige. And could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, hello, ladies. I'm very happy to be here. Um, My name is Paige Christie. I write under page L Christie because I've spent my life being called Christie Page, so I put a very pretentious initial in the middle so people would know my first name from my last. Um, I was raised in a small town in uh, the state of Maine in the United States, and I currently live in the western North Carolina mountains where I have an art gallery and wine shop, and I'm the executive director of a nonprofit, and I write books, and I have too many cats and too many dogs. So that's me.
0: Oh, we're, we're a big fan of cats, especially on Breaking the last slipper. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: Sorry, I was going to say I'm a big fan of wine shops. I see what you're
0: are <laughs> <laughs> also a big fan of wine shops.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. I'm a big fan of wine shops too. And I figured the best way to get as much wine as I like to enjoy was to have my own store. So that's what I did in the middle of a recession nonetheless. So, you know, I'm not known for the most logical of manoeuvres.
0: So, um, well, I was going to say Wine Shops and Dragons, because uh, dragons are obviously a very big part of your series. Um, I was lucky enough to uh, read um, a proof of Paige's first book last year, and it really was one of my favourite reads of 2017. I thought it was very clever, and I thought what she was doing uh, with with the uh, women and their representation in fantasy was very important. Um, So we thought we'd just jump right in um, with our first question. Uh, for you, which is about the damsel and the dragon slayer trope. And I think um, we've spoken a little bit before about how you uh, decided to take the idea of the damsel and the dragon slayer and kind of turn it on its head. And, and that uh, provided the kind of foundation of the idea for dragon weather. Um, could you tell us a little bit about why you're interested in that?
2: Well, we grew up with so many different stories about who we're supposed to be as girls and growing up into women And um, the women are always being rescued by everybody. And that, as a child, annoyed me even then. And I loved dragons. And I never could figure out um, why the dragons wanted to eat the girls and um, why the girls needed to be rescued from the dragon. It was just, those two things never made sense. I was like, but dragons are awesome. Why would they want to eat me? So I just thought somewhere along the way, what if the... Young woman, the girl who's chained to the rock and the dragon is coming to eat her. What if she wants to be there? What if there's something else going on? And there's always been something else going on. And all these stories of dragons eating maidens uh, were just a ruse to cover up what's really happening. Uh, And that just spiraled. And that's where the story came from.
1: So obviously you create your own uh, reasoning as to why the maidens are sacrificed to dragons. But when you were researching, did you find any evidence in other stories or other myths as to why women were the preferred offering? And did you come across any instance where maybe men or young boys were being sacrificed and, and the reasoning behind that?
2: Well, I found a lot about various child sacrifices across different cultures. And one thing I noticed that seemed to be the same was that when it came to sacrificing boys, boys tend to be sacrificed to gods and some girls were too, but it was mostly only the girls that were sacrificed to what we would classify as monsters. So I found that kind of fascinating, you know, children are precious, children are uh, the future uh, for so many different cultures around the world. So to sacrifice to a God is offering something that's special. To get rid of a monster, maybe you don't value the girl as much to do it. Was what I kept running into, and I thought I need to spin that somehow <laughs> uh, because it frustrated me. Uh, so yeah, the idea of sacrifice is so um, omnipresent throughout every culture, especially in the past. Maybe not so much now, but the girls seem to be the ones who are devalued in that act of sacrifice more than the boys. So. I didn't like that. So once again, I needed to play with it.
1: Well, I also quite like the the analogy you drew there between children being sacrificed to gods and uh, women being sacrificed to monsters. And I suppose another sort of way of looking at it, apart from obviously devaluing women, is obviously sort of overestimating them. And you have the idea of the monsters, which are unclean, and the women who are supposed to represent beauty and virtue. And that's why it's always the fairest and why it's always the maiden and chaste. And they're almost put on a pedestal but at the same time like you say still being devalued and they're focusing on the wrong attributes for women as being you know the the opposite of monsters.
2: Yeah and I actually had an interesting conversation with a a gentleman at JordanCon this past weekend who asked me about that he's like well are they sacrificing the virgins because it seems like that's an easy fix for the girl and I kind of (laughs) chuckled and I said I said no actually I'm I'm sacrificing the girls or I'm not. But in the story, the girls that are sacrificed are um, are the ones who are the smart ones. They're the troublemakers. They're the they're the ones who ask too many questions and um, think their own thoughts. And so they're dangerous to society. And so society's trying to get rid of them. So it's a spin on that as well, where they're not sacrificing the pure ones. They're sacrificing the troublemakers. That's a little bit different as well in the book.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I really enjoyed that. For once, I felt like I would be in line for some sacrificing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was never going to be on the top of a, a list of any uh, dutiful maiden uh, going Chased after the maiden. dragon. <laughs> what are you saying about me, Lucy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I. No, quite... I'm not on the taste maiden
2: list either. Yes.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. That nice twist to it. It was it was really fun. The cultural myths that you establish in, in the novels, like, you know, they're all about keeping women in line, you know, all the stories that they tell and, you know, just the, the way that kind of the, they've built the, the history in your world. It, it was really interesting. And I wanted to know, you know, were these inspired by real cultural myths? You know, do we create cultural myths as a way to keep women down specifically or to create myths to keep you know any minority group down. And was this something that you really wanted to explore when you set out to write um Dragonweather? And you know, should more speculative fiction attempt to inspire us to push back against these social norms?
2: Oh, that's a that's a good question. And I've been kind of rattling around stuff related to that. Again, back to women in need of rescuing in a lot of these myths women in need rescuing but i wanted to play with the story and, and with the myths and the stories that are told and retold throughout the book, because storytelling is a big part of the book with the idea that the stories that were told are maybe not the true stories, that there's another version of the story. If you dig deep enough, if you pay attention uh, because stories are told by those who are able to tell them those who have voice. And so the myths are created to explain or or um, keep in line the social and cultural norms. They're meant to explain what's under the bed or or what's up on the mountain um, and keep everything in line in regard to that. If you s- tell the scary story, then the children will behave in, less in such a way. But what if that's not the real story? So I think when you start, start digging into cultural um, creations of legend and myth and cultural history you're really digging into a way of containing society and explaining what's out in the world but those stories have so many layers to them and maybe there's a different version out there and so you know like robin mckinley is known for spinning the fairy tales
3: i i love her so much (laughs) Ah, i
2: i I adore her she uh
3: she actually um
2: graduated from my high school (gasps) Uh, several years ahead of me. And my favorite English teacher was one of her teachers. And so when I was in high school, she brought Robin McKinley in. I got to meet her and talk with her. And that's where I discovered her way back many, many years ago. And I've been a huge fan ever since. But I love the way she takes what you're expecting in a story, a fairy tale, and she flips it, you know, like Beauty and the Beast and Beauty's Not Pretty. I love that, you know. So um, I think getting to the heart of the myth, it sometimes means going beyond what the culture wants the myth to do. I'm not sure I answered the question, but there you have it.
3: <laughs> well, because, I mean, when you look at the sort of uh, fairy tales, which I suppose is, is I'm encroaching on Charlotte's territory here. So I should tread carefully. But you, you know, you have the, the kind of the sanitized versions and over the years, you know, they become more and more sanitized from their kind of origins. And it's interesting to see how the, the change in these myths and, you know, when they maybe started off as something really harrowing to scare people or so on, you know, and they, they then get watered down as time goes on and then the needs for them changes and the, the culture changes with them.
2: I think that's true, and I think that's why, in the past, I think it's been nearly a decade. Is urban fantasy so popular because as more and more people are moving into into cities, the myths of the rural landscape are don't make sense, and so they Urban fantasy is creating myths in in these more brick and mortar settings because I think we need that aspect we need to try to understand the things that don't make sense in our world and we need to try to under- we need to look for magic everywhere we are even though we are, we don't necessarily enjoy our everyday logic our everyday requirements and doing everything just so in our daily jobs and to, the idea that there's something lurking in the in the shadows or in the corner or under the sewer grate i think really reaches out to people
1: I think you make an interesting point because previously, as you say, well, certainly in Britain, we uh, we had a very rural um, countryside kind of orientated society. And we did create fairy tales to explain away thunders or strange little man's in the hill. Uh, my favourite is always Jenny Greenteeth, depending on or Peg Powler, depending on which part of the country you're in, who used to drag children down under the um under the river or under the water if they strayed too close. And I think you make an interesting point that once you go into the city, which is all completely man-made, there is no mystery. And it's interesting because previously when we are in the countryside, we used myths and folklore to explain things we didn't understand. And that's become so ingrained that we can't move into a city sort of area, in an urban area, without wanting to replicate that magic and give it the same sense of mystery that we feel when we go out and walk through the countryside
2: what's behind what's in that old house that's been here for centuries and you know where did the wood come from and is does that affect you know the building or yeah all these things we want to we want to explore within our own imagination
1: absolutely and i mean before megan steals any more of my questions um (laughs) (laughs) i mean (laughs) Throughout history, fairy tales in particular have been employed as both propaganda and rebellion. So they've been used to enhance, I know the Nazis appropriated the Little Red Riding Hood myth. Um, And for rebellion ideas, obviously, you've got all of the storytellers around the fire. Um, particularly women telling stories and um, using fairy tales as a way to cope with daily life or daily struggles. And a, sub- a subversive message can easily be passed on through a story or a repeated motif can gradually be accepted as wisdom if people hear it enough. So, I mean, how much um, were you influenced by this really rich history of folklore that we've got? How much did that kind of influence your writing and and how or rather influence how you created um, the societies within Dragonweather?
2: Well, uh, for me, folklore has always been about family, and that can be the family you're born into or the family that you create as you move through your life. And I think we do so much storytelling in our daily lives to each other and to ourselves, Uh, especially the women I know. I just I find that women have their own internal mythology. They have we have our own folk tales that we absorb all the fairy tales that we're told. And then we take that into ourselves and we go out into the world and we find other women who have, they may be from a different part of the country or they may have a different background, um, but they've absorbed a lot of the same things in Western society about how we're supposed to look and how we're supposed to act. This internal storytelling that we do, we share that with each other. If we've if we've had um, bad relationships, if we've had uh, abusive situations, if we've had magical moments where we meet people that matter to us. Uh, we tell our family stories. We tell our family histories. And so folklore <laughs> begins in childhood with the fairy tales, but we carry it inside us and we build our family and um, the people that we care about, the people that matter to us based around the stories we tell ourselves and we tell each other. And so for me, folklore is not just the historical history. It's not just the old stories. It's uh, something we are still creating and something we do every day. And so I wanted to kind of um, bring that continuing creation into the book when I was writing a bit about how the women tell each other stories and um, how those tales and how those ideas that arise from them change them and affect them and move them through the world.
1: So, Paige, your novel puts a great emphasis on oral storytelling because the women there um, are not permitted to read. And this is obviously a natural part of an oppressive society. But do you think there's a place for oral storytelling in our modern day world of bookshops and Kindles?
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, and I think there, in fact, there's a resurgence of it going on. Uh, when you look at audiobooks, even, you know, people are always asking uh, online, in these, in these online groups. Um, is listening to a book the same as reading. Are you really Can you count that as a book that's been read? Well, absolutely, because there was storytelling long before there was writing. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's an older book, and it's, it's more theory than science, but it's fascinating. It's a book by Leonard Schlain. I believe it's S-C-H-L-A-I-N. I could be wrong on the spelling there. It's a book called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, and he has a theory that the actually the development of writing, especially since most humans, not all, but most humans are right handed um, and working the left side of the brain when you learn to write. And valuing starts to put physical, actually physical, physiological value on the left side of the brain and what's considered the masculine elements of logic and understanding, and it takes away empathy and one-to-one transmission of information where you're facing someone and you can see their hand gestures and their facial expression and hear the tone of their voice, that passing on information through writing and learning to write and the creation of literacy actually was part of the destruction of the goddess cultures because it changed the way we prioritized and valued and shared information. So now along comes the computer age, where you're typing again with two hands. We've got online videos, we've got oral storytelling on audiobooks, we've got YouTube, and everything is more visual and more two-handed, and we're building a new conflicts in society as people start using both sides of their brain again. I was fascinated by the book. Again, it's a lot of This is kind of what I thought about, and here's the theory, and here's what I think might back it up. It's not science per se, but it's fascinating. And so I think that this reconnection with both halves of our brain that's going on in society makes people more excited about this oral storytelling and really connecting with people again. And it would seem that a computer and the Internet separates people from being one-to-one but yet, I met Lucy online, and here we are talking, and we FaceTimed yesterday accidentally. It was
0: cool. Like it, w- it was it was accidentally, but it was uh, also cool.
2: <laughs> it was also cool. I was like, "Hey, it's you!" It was very <laughs> cool. So, on the one hand, we can be separated by this technology, but on the other hand, this um, new ways to see different parts of the world, see people we would never see otherwise, uh, type with both hands, and speak across the world. I think, brings this oral storytelling back into the forefront of our lives. At least I hope it does, because I think it's awesome.
3: Yeah, and also, I mean, my dad struggles to read uh, just on paper. We have long suspected he may have dyslexia. Um, but. He loves audiobooks and that's how he gets through books because he struggles to to sit and read them and you know he listens to them when he's running he listens to them when he's doing the gardening you know he's always listening to his audiobooks and his podcasts including this one hey dad um so <laughs> i think you know in that respect that oral storytelling i think is, is great for um you know letting people have access to books if if they wouldn't necessarily have been able to easily get hold of them or easily read them
2: Yes, especially folks who, you know, either have difficulty reading or perhaps have a a brain injury or for any number of reasons makes it difficult. They just don't have time in there. They're stuck in traffic and they can't open a book while they're stuck in traffic. But they can listen to that story and they can listen to the podcast, which I'm a podcast listener as I'm driving around. Um, So, yeah, I think it's wonderful to have access to stories from all over the world.
0: But obviously, in your series, the books are not available to, uh, especially to women, because they they're actually banned and they're not uh, women aren't allowed to read. And so their stories or what stories they can, um, they can hear and they can, have to be, told orally, which is what we were just talking about. Um, but what was so very interesting about um, about Dragon Weather is your use of education as um, a means of rebellion against an oppressive society. Um, So the women chosen to be sacrificed to the dragons, they're all intelligent and inquiring with a hunger for learning. And I personally found that really refreshing um, because I think all too often uh, fantasy authors turn to using violence kind of as the only means to to rise up against, um, you know, the dictates of uh, like a kind of oligarchy or a um, dictatorship and um, obviously there are parallels to be drawn with the real world um, but why did you decide to kind of focus on, on this, this, it's this wonderful kind of um, like this aura of learning that, that kind of suffuses um, both of your books and, and the, the, the importance of, of education and, and, and also obviously the importance of education when it's, when it's withheld and, and the power of, of that grants um, to the men in your society.
2: I'm the product um, of an extreme abundance. I've been very lucky of education. I grew up very poor in a small blue-collar town, um, and education was sort of my way out. I, you know, I wanted to know more, and I wanted to learn more, and I wanted to read and understand and. And so for me, education was freedom. It was a freedom for my mind and freedom to think differently and freedom to meet new people and explore how, how they saw the world. And so for me, education has always been about freeing my own faculties, you know, on all levels. Um, and I believe in learning on all levels. I believe in learning on a physical level. I do, you know, dance study. I believe I was a a ski instructor for years i was a photography instructor you know i i really believe that education can happen on from the body to the mind to the spirit and it's freedom it frees people to explore parts of themselves they otherwise wouldn't and that confidence that comes with it can free them to take a look at the rest of the world in a new way the Dark side of education is when it becomes indoctrination, which is what happens to the male lead character in the book. Um, he's being educated. He's learning things. But it's for a specific purpose. It's for um, a purpose that uh, forces him into this role in society that uh, the elders, the the enclaves, want him to have. And they want him to be a certain way and think a certain way. And so education is very, very powerful no matter which way it goes. It can be this line to uh, escape and expansion and being true to yourself and finding out who you are. It can also be the thing that wraps you into something and you don't even realize it's happening. So I kind of wanted to play with both aspects of it in the books. And you you get a little bit of both.
0: Yeah I think that came across really really strongly um and especially with um Cloud, your male protagonist in book 2 it's actually painful to read cuz you know you can see how um how indoctrinated he is and how damaged he's become it's basically kind of ruined his life and and um and a- as a parallel with your female character Leil who is so um enlightened and and made free uh, through the power of learning uh, it's just that's I thought that was just done so so beautifully. Um, so I really, really enjoyed actually reading about uh, learning in, in fantasy, which is it, just one of those things that really, is really missing from fantasy. I think that fantasy has it has a great potential to explore these kinds of um, very big social issues and all, all too often it kind of gets swamped by Petty battles and, and kind of uh, individual ass, acts of heroism, you know, in a kind of quite, you know, in, in, I suppose in a quite masculine way. Um, but I, I, so I really appreciated this, the kind of the way that you've actually just kind of transcended those more kind of obvious tropes and have kind of gone down, you know, a much more kind of, you know, interesting path um, and, and using education as, you know, a means to, to explore oppression in society.
2: Well, thank you. It was it was definitely a little bit of a risk to take it that way. And it's part of why I ended up being published through my fabulous small press, prospective press here in North Carolina, because uh, the New York agents were like, this is good writing, and but there's not enough oomph and where are the fights? And, and it was not enough bing, bang, boom. And I don't, really like bing bang boom i have enough of that in my world it's Mm -hmm. on the news it's on tv um i i want to feel what the characters are feeling when i read i write what i want to read i want to i want to find the, the depth and the human connection or the cross human connection or the non human connection if i'm dealing with dragons but i want to find a way for people to communicate and I want them to feel what I'm writing in their bodies, if that makes any sense. I want it to run right through them because that's what I want to feel when I read. And for me, another sword fight, another, you know, battle doesn't do that. I don't connect to anything there. And so I I write this more intimate level and I write the things that um, have affected me because for me, education was so vital and um, the power of the word was so vital. i had this fabulous English teacher in high school who used to bring in the original Star Trek uh, to class and make us watch it. And then we would talk about archetypes, you know, and she brought in Wordsworth and she's like, okay, we're going to discuss pantheism and it's like the force, you know? So I got really lucky in my education that I had creative teachers who understood how culture and education connect. And I really wanted to kind of explore that in the books.
0: We had an episode on um, violence and conflict actually quite recently. So uh, I think everything you've been saying is it really resonates quite closely with um, with topics that we, we discussed, which is that we were actually struggling to find. Um, I mean, there are plenty of examples of um, of, you know, books that, uh, and, and media that doesn't kind of fall into the trap of just using kind of gratuitous violence. book uh, probably does as well because that's i really felt like you know and actually it's with when you use violence judiciously the violence is all the more um kind of unsettling and extreme Um, especially with all of your these guys haven't had the pleasure of reading book two but I really found that in in the second book that it really comes through with this you know when you actually have those those violent moments it's like you know actually much more harrowing because you know you don't use it um, from page to page and I think that's another uh, you know it's another example of of where we kind of you were saying about uh, traditionally published books that we were all too kind of desensitized by you know Hollywood and it's kind of like a fixture or fixation on um, violent narratives
2: yeah it, it can be really overwhelming to to look out and see like what was the movie that was out? John the John Wick movies which is like I had to sit back and look at those movies as okay I'm going to watch this for the choreography I'm going to put my dancer brain on because then I can just watch the bodies moving and not think about what actually happening because it's horrific, you know so I had to I had to pull myself out of that what was the consequences of the motion that was taking place on the screen and just enjoy whoever had done the choreography because it just it was overwhelming and but I had to separate I had to separate from the storytelling even in order to to get there and for me that was a loss. I was like oh, you know so too much violence doesn't work for me. I, I'm also I'm also a big fan of a little more use. People are going to hate me for this. Everybody's going to hate me for this. Of passive voice in certain places because we're so go, 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 go. Instant gratification, action, action, action in our daily lives and our interactions. But sometimes I just want to pull away from that. I want to back up and let things flow a little bit. let take a slower path into the story. Um, and so I do that purposefully, which I know freaks some people out. But for me, it was a way to lead the story in a different direction.
1: Well, I I don't remember um, Passive Voice slipping into it. And uh, I know that um, Lucy and I were talking about how, as an editor, I read it possibly slightly differently to other people. But I certainly, I certainly don't remember the Passive Voice. I remember um, the first book in particular being very well paced. And as Lucy said, not an overuse of violence, which is really nice. People created their own problems by arguing in words, but also solved them the same way. And, and that's quite refreshing to find in a fantasy novel and not to have the big set battle scene.
0: Mm. They they knew more. The end battle. Yes. <laughs> so yes. someone who's written an end battle. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Three um, end battles, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, end battles, there's something, there's something to be said for working with resonance. And fantasy has this um, history of the big battle you know, the big battle. And so I'm, I've got two more books in the series. And, and one thing I'm struggling with, uh, I'm actually the third book is mostly written, and I'm just in another draft of it. and It should be to my editor in a few months. But the fourth book, I'm struggling with how far to take, you know, how far to follow the classic mode versus really come at this sideways and do something completely different. And I've got two different options that I'm playing with. And we'll just see what the characters demand. The third book takes you in a totally different direction because one of my characters popped up and said, I need my own book. So, you know, that's how it happens. Uh, <laughs> I, I Part of me doesn't think I actually wrote this story. I think that part of me, and this is woo woo. I think I channeled it uh, from somewhere else because I'm not a plotter. I don't. Outline, I just write and then I get an idea, and the characters say, Oh, well, because you did this, we need to go do that. And then I go do that. And I don't write in a linear fashion, I don't write in order, I just write down everything that comes to me, and then I figure out how it fits. It drives my beta readers crazy. Sorry, <laughs> Ellen. Sorry, Rebecca. Uh, <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Um, so, yeah, I'm a bad girl. <laughs> it's so much fun to be a bad girl. Okay.
1: page in your novel you examine the effect of cultural issues particularly the oppression of women through the microcosm of leal's family Um, now i'm a big stephen king fan and i think he's a great proponent of this style of storytelling where he uses families or, or small communities such as in the recent sleeping beauty to reflect the wider social issues um i mean do you think this is a handy storytelling device or is it actually a reflection of reality do you quite often get wider society issues replaying themselves within the home in the same way that um, legal society issues replay with Clem, her brother.
2: Oh, yes. And I have to say that, yeah, I'm from Maine, so Stephen King. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Stephen King, my favourite Stephen King book is Salem's Lot. And part of what I love about Salem's Lot is his use of the town itself as a character in that book. And the way he describes the town and how the people interact with the town and not just the buildings, but the the rivers and the mountains. And and he uses the town, the town does this, the town sees that. And in the town, the town is a character. And I love that intimate connection, that um, sense of place and how place informs your characters and your people and your connections. I'm interested in how the personal and the emotional collide with the social and the public, and you can do that on a grand scale. You can have newscasts about the great plague taking place on the other side of the world or whatever, or you can show the effect of the plague on the family, what happens when the family member gets sick or the neighbor gets sick. there's much more intimate connection there. So for me, the microcosm storytelling and how your characters, like in Liel's case, she's got this dual conflict going on with her two brothers. One of her brothers just wants to put his head in the sand and pretend nothing ever happened and just go about his business and la la la. And the other one is just filled with rage over what happened to their mother and he takes it out on his sister. And in the background, You've got her father, who you don't really know um, where he falls. Is he angry with her? Is he angry with her mother? Does he side with the brother? Does he back out? He he sort of can't find... He's supposed to be the head of the family, but he ends up not being in the end.
1: I mean, the way I read it was that the father is the head of the family, um, particularly while Elora is there. But when she goes, it's almost like a turning point for him as well as for the rest of the family, because he suddenly starts to um disintegrate is the wrong word but he perhaps disengage is a better word um and i mean it's a a massive trope of the younger generation coming into their own when the older generation take a step back and i think you you deal with that very well because you you chart it in a very intimate personal way that you don't necessarily get in fantasy so you think about um Luke Skywalk, for example um and his family just die and that's it and suddenly he's the the only one left whereas with this you've got the transition from um the father being the main head of the family and then Clem kind of gradually taking over and poor old Leel's uh freedoms and particularly as Lisa was saying earlier her education just getting slowly eroded away as her brother gets more powerful.
2: Yeah it's and it's actually a fairly extreme shift because um he's the youngest of the of the men in the family and he ends up leaping to the head of the family um well not leaping but finding himself there through his own actions and choices and and um so it's it's not the older brother that takes over it's the younger brother and so it's this it's this shift it's almost like skipping skipping over the generation that should take over and into the next so it's this very traumatic thing that happens
1: within the family. Well, like you say, Clem kind of works his his way to the top because he personifies the whole idea of the the society that they live within. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, I think you've balanced it really well. You've got the microcosm when you've got obviously Lil going out into society and meeting Gary and everything like that. But you've also got a very personal narrative in the form of Lil within her family itself I mean, obviously, I don't know how the how the books read going forward, but which do you think is, is more powerful, sort of examining them in a, a micro society of itself or within the personal, on a very, very personal level, through a main protagonist? Or do you think a mixture is the way to go in all cases?
2: I think for me, um, I find the more intimate storytelling to be more powerful, but I don't think there's one right way to do it. I think um, I try to make it work on both levels. I try to make it work on the greater cultural level and just have things reflected in different layers throughout the book. For me, it's the personal connection between characters and uh, what happens to them and how it affects them emotionally and physically and mentally that, that really makes a story move forward. So that's my favorite stuff to write. But I know that carrying that into a macrocosmic look at things um, can kind of make it make sense as it reflects the world and maybe let people carry it into how they view it in the quote real world um, because i do want to have people read my work and have them maybe look at things a little bit differently having done so. I mean, it's a little bit pretentious to say, but I want to put a little spark in the back of someone's mind that maybe gets them considering one little thing differently. That would make me incredibly happy.
3: I don't think that's pretentious to, to want that. I mean, <laughs> that's why I love speculative fiction, the, the way that it is social commentary, and it can get people to think about, the society in different ways in ways that they might not have done if they were just presented with the facts as they are um, and that's what I think is powerful about storytelling in general as well as particularly speculative fiction
2: yeah I mean I have been in love with speculative fiction since I I can remember I can't remember not thinking that this is the best thing out there you know so I'm what was it it was Joss Whedon said, "Millennium Falcon, good stagecoach, better." Like it's like my two things <laughs> that I always loved as a kid were were fantastical books and cartoons. You know, the Justice League on TV, and Aquaman was my favorite, and um, storytelling and all of these things. And then westerns of all things, oh, because there's something yes, about, there's something about <laughs> westerns that but uh, again it's the land it's the place it's the character of itself and I loved the broad vistas and I loved the incredibly overly dramatic storytelling you know it's just just over the top over the top um, and just take me with you take me with you over the top into those crazy emotions that you know you how you don't just don't get to delve into that in your everyday life I want to go when i'm reading i want to go when i'm being told a story um, so i'm a huge fan of uh, frederick faust who wrote uh, westerns as max brand and his style of storytelling because it's incredibly character driven it's not just the bang bang shoot them up um, and i'm a fan of louis L'Amour's later work uh, especially the book the lonesome gods because he brings this subtly fantastical element of uh, this child who's orphaned uh, in early California, when Brida's Los Angeles is becoming a city, and he has to go and find his way. His father's killed. He's left in the desert by himself to die, and the lonesome gods come to help him and teach him how to survive, and you find out who the lonesome gods are later. But there's this fantastical, mythical element that I think is associated with the very brief and overly nostalgic period of the old west in the united states that fascinates me so some of that comes through in my storytelling because the landscape and the the long uh, dusty weather and and various things and wagon trains and all of that you you sort of get it yeah so really I like that it. in my book yeah <laughs> so, the
0: weather particularly
2: yeah
0: ah, it's a my, atmosphere
2: uh, i pitched <laughs> the first book to my editor as um a feminist western with dragons and he stopped i had known him all of 30 seconds and he said we don't take westerns at the press but i'm intrigued and so off i sent the book and when they decided to accept it they took no westerns off their list
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say I don't know about you guys, but seriously, if someone said feminist westerns with dragons in it, I'd be like, "Sign me up."
3: <laughs> to pick up on what you were talking about um, when it comes to making people think differently, one of the thing that I things that I liked about Dragon Weather was kind of the the use of secrets. And this is going to sound odd, but you know, to me, I was reading it um, you know, is a kind of a look at how throughout history, whenever there's oppression around, the the people who kind of fight that might do so in a very kind of secretive or, or quiet manner. Um, you know, even if it's just, you know, hiding your books because you're not allowed to have books or if it's just, you know, it, it all comes down to hiding who you are. And obviously this kind of has... A lot of kind of parallels to to the LGBT community, um, you know, you, the, the idea of coming out, you know, these people are hiding that they are educated or they're hiding, yeah, whatever it is that they're not allowed to do in society. Um, and I just, yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and how you think maybe secrets born of oppression have hindered or helped um, because you know, on, on the one hand, that it, it's this kind of quiet rebellion to keep these things going, but at the same time, it's kind of when you deny yourself or, or deny that that public self of you know, who you actually are, it's almost letting them win as well. So it's this kind of weird kind of balance. And was that part of something you were thinking about, or am I just completely reading into it <laughs> entirely? Well,
2: you're not. You're not reading into it. I. I, I tend to just dump stuff into what I write. (laughs) So a lot of that is there and part of that is um, I have a lot of friends who are uh, from minority communities are involved in um, activities or hobbies that put them outside the social norm and or they study things that put them outside the social norm and some of it has even put them in danger to do so. So I have this affinity for people who work behind the scenes, work um, to share knowledge, work to spread knowledge. Women have always done this. Women have always, always done this. Women make the whole world go. We do. Uh, And to deny that is a form of insanity. But we've always been the ones that hold social fabric together. We're the storytellers. We're the, the keepers of... Of knowledge we we understand the the importance of connection and my most intense conversations are with Women truly they you know, we laugh we cry. It doesn't matter if we've known each other five minutes or you know 40 years we the way women interact the way women support each other and I think that when as a minority or a person who's been through a lot of pain in their life, a lot of times you feel like you're alone, like nobody else understands what's going on out there. And then you find that one person that you connect with and you find the person that that is connected to and it's all happening in the background and all of a sudden you're not alone. Um, So that can be very powerful. And it's the loss of that publicly Breaks my heart. I I don't I don't like the idea that people have to hide who they are and what they feel and who they love and um, you know what their heritage is. Uh, it it frustrates me to no end. But on the other hand, I want those people to know that there are other people out there who support them and understand and will connect and that it's not all bad. And so the book kind of plays with that. But they keep finding each other people keep finding each other despite the oppression despite what they're forced to not be find on some level a way to be themselves and we all wish for more with you know so you know what's she wishing for when she's chained to that rock you know? it's the other reason totally aside or taking this in a different direction that i love the con circuit i love places um, where i see People being exactly who they want to be, even if it's for two days or four days, they're dressed how they want to dress. They've got the hair and makeup or they don't. uh, But they're talking to people who love the same things they do and and they're exploring what it would be like if I could be this character, if I could really be who I want to be every day or the three people I want to be in a weekend. And I love to watch that. I always have. I love to watch people just come alive with the joy of who they would be every day if they could. And I think creating those spaces for people is vital. So more cons. Anyway, (laughs) total aside.
0: Much of the uh, oppressive themes in your novel are inspired by history. Um, Are there any forms of female rebellion that you'd like to see explored in fantasy? Um, And how else? Do you think that, you know, women could fight back uh, or be seen to be fighting back on the
2: written page? Oh, I love this question. (laughs) You know, I think women should fight back on every level. I want to see um, more women storytellers. I want to see women um, writers. I want to see women in leadership position. I especially would like to see women in leadership positions in fantasy. In religion in a religion where it has not been corrupted where the religion itself has not been corrupted and is a force in the world for whatever change or good or motion needs to happen but without being the big bad um, a lot of times religion is, you know in our everyday world has religion does a lot of good but religion is blamed for a lot of evil And I would like to see a female headed church or sect or something that is strong and educated and smart and um, armed if necessary, but not as a primary feature of their power and able to take on anything that comes, whether it's an army or social disruption or a uh, natural disaster. I would love to see something that from women that is strength and spirit and education in one place that is the leading society in a world. That's that's a big dream of mine. So uh, I, I would love to see that. Um, I would love to see, you know, just more women diving into writing this kind of stuff. I would think one, women win can, one way women can fight back on the page is by writing. We as women writers, Just keep telling our stories, keep telling the things that matter and talking about the issues that matter to us. I mean, you guys are fighting every day on the page and off the page with this podcast, and I appreciate the heck out of it as a listener on the other end. So women fighting on the page by stories that are told about them on the page and women fighting on the page by writing these kind of things. That's what I'd like to see.
0: We'd like to say a huge thank you to Paige L. Christie for joining us tonight. We've established that feminist Westerns are where it's at. How women are the bearers of knowledge, the conveyors of stories, and are stronger when they support each other. We would all love to see female strength, spirit and education coming together to form a social narrative for the future. Thank you for listening to another episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. Hello, Megan's Dad.